Well, if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the great love chapter, which um, we began a few weeks ago. We're in our third look at it tonight as we consider the end of it and what Paul says about the permanence of love. As the lover in the book of Song of Solomon said, many waters cannot quench love. Neither can floods drown it. Well, the Apostle Paul agrees, not just regarding romantic love, but Christian neighbor love. It's permanent, Paul says. And let me then invite you to consider it as we hear again the whole chapter about love. And I'm going to pick up the reading at chapter 12, verse the end of verse 31, where he makes his transition and read the first part of chapter 14, verse 1, which really concludes this section. Hear now the word of God. And I will show you a still more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, And if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now, faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. Pursue love. Amen. This is God's word. May he write it on our hearts. Let's look to him in prayer. Father in heaven, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And we ask that you would cause it to teach, rebuke, correct, and train in righteousness that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Equip us all. 
we pray, to serve you. You who first loved us, help us to love you in service and to love one another. Teach us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When preaching this series on love, I can't help but identify with the Bible commentator Leon Morris, who at the end of his commentary on this portion says, the commentator cannot finish writing on this chapter without a sense that soiled and clumsy hands have touched a thing of exquisite beauty and holiness. I feel that way when preaching this. I have soiled and clumsy hands. And, uh, and I'll say this, if you have felt like Paul over the last couple of weeks, as we've listened to him, has, or even hearing him tonight, has backed up the dump truck and unloaded a mountain of expectations about Christian love on you, well, you'd be correct. Love, Paul says, and he piles on what love means. What is Paul saying? Well, previously we've outlined the passage in three ways. In verses 1 through 3, we saw Paul talk about the priority of love. In verses 4 through 7, the practice of love, the description of it, what it does and what it doesn't do, what it is and what it isn't. And then beginning at verse 8, he says love never ends. In 8 through 13, he speaks of the permanence of love, where we'll spend most of our time. But let me just say a few words about each of those first two points again. First, the priority of love in verses 1 through 3. Paul says a life without love means, in the language of my sister-in-law, who once said in a different context to my parents, um, what have you been doing? Zip, zero, zilch, nada, the big goose egg. Uh, Paul says, well, that's what a life without love is. I don't care, says Paul, if, if you can speak the language of the angels or if you give yourself to be burned at the stake in martyrdom for the cause of Jesus, if you do it without love. You can have all kinds of spiritual abilities and spiritual achievements, he says. But without love, they're useless. Love is the most important thing. And so as one pastor summed up Corinth, he said that was the one great thing that was needed and the one great thing that, thing that was absent. There was no self-sacrificial giving or the washing of each other's feet in that church. Rather, the Christians there resented each other, argued with each other, and shut each other out from their private little groups. They sexually violated each other, sued each other, boasted against each other, deprived each other in marriage, divorced each other, perverted the proper place of women in the church meeting, withheld food from the poor at the love feast, turned the Lord's table into a drunken orgy, offended each other, and fought each other for prominence in the use of their spiritual gifts. All of those things, which we've looked at, basically all of those over the last year, all are the absence of the one great thing. That's most necessary. Love. So that's the priority. Love. And then he spoke and we looked at the practice of love in verses 4 through 7 where he just lists all these things about love. But too often our lives can be summed up by this. I lived for myself. I thought for myself. For myself and none beside. Just as as if Jesus 
had never lived as if Jesus had never died. But love means, as someone once attributed to, more than once has attributed to John Wesley, though it's in dispute, someone once said, do, love means this, do all the good you can, by all the means you can, in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, at all the times you can, to all the people you can, as long as you ever can, for the sake of Christ. How else can we hear the list in, in verses 4 through 7 than, than that? Love is patient and kind. It goes out of its way to do good and to be useful to others. Now listen, maybe we have a hard time just getting along with our, with our spouse or our children or our parents or our siblings, let alone people we disagree with in the church. This is a tall task, and we wonder if we really have to put up with that crazy neighbor or be kind to our enemies. But this, Paul says, we are called to do because we are called to love. And so even to consider the demands of loving others is simply to turn a spotlight on our own unloving hearts and to expose the fact that we're not good lovers. This chapter exposes our coldness towards one another. It shows we're bent in on ourselves. And we do feel completely inadequate for the task of truly loving and persevering in love with those who are hard for us to love. Paul wanted the Corinthians who heard this chapter to shake their heads and say, look how unloving. I have been. Oh, Lord, forgive me. Lord, save me. Lord, change me. Lord, make me love like you have loved me. And so too for us. That's how we ought to view this chapter. And then in verse 8, he comes to the permanence of love. Love, he says, never ends. And this is where we'll spend our time. We discern, I think, the mind of the Apostle Paul if we skip from verse 8 down to verse 13. And you'll catch the flow of what he's really driving at. In verse 8 he says, As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. Verse 13, So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three. But the greatest of them is love. So he says there are things which cease and things which abide. That's the contrast he's making. The stuff in the middle, verses 9 to 12, just supports his case. So the chief concern is what is temporary and will cease, and what is permanent and goes on forever. All that by way of introduction. Now we want to think about the permanence of love, and I want you to see three chief lessons Paul has for us in verses 8 through 13. Actually, through 14, verse 1. Three lessons on love. The first one is this, from verses 8 through 12. Love never ends, but some spiritual gifts or abilities do. As for prophecies, they will pass away, he says, and on. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. 
So here's what he's saying. He's saying God has given revelation to his people. God has revealed himself, his word, his will, his ways, his way of salvation in Jesus. He's revealed himself to his people. And he's done it in a variety of ways. He's done it by means of prophets. He's done it by means of those who speak in, in other languages. He's done it by words of revelation that are given to help people understand God, his will, and his salvation. And Paul is saying here that these extraordinary gifts of the Holy Spirit are only useful in a context uh, which is incomplete, which is partial, which is imperfect and unfinished. That's why they're given. He says tongues will stop. That's his language. They'll cease. Tongues will stop. Tells you, by the way, and we'll... Chapter 14, we'll get into this just a little bit more. But the fact that tongues will stop, or languages, the gift of supernaturally being able to to speak another language and share the good news of the gospel, it tells you something about the nature of the gift of tongues and languages, that they are not the language of heaven, or they would not cease. It also, likewise, uh, the fact that they will stop means that that they, whatever they are, are not the most profound way of expressing exalted intimacy with God, as some have claimed they are. Or they wouldn't cease. And yet he says they will cease. What tongues are will become much more clear as we get to chapter 14, and so we'll come back to that. Now, regarding prophecy and knowledge, he says, when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Or we can translate that when the time of maturity comes or the time of completeness comes. This word perfect there has those connotations. The time of completeness or wholeness or perfection. When it comes, the partial will pass away, he says. Now, when is that time? What's he he talking about? Well, there's a significant debate about that, and you ought to be aware of it. Some people say that that time is when the giving of God's special revelation, the scriptures, the Bible, have been completed, which it has. But they say that's when this partial is uh, completed. Uh, And so in this view, Paul is referring to the time between the Old Testament, excuse me, (laughs) he's referring to the time when the Old Testament and the New Testament has been finalized Ending with the giving of the book of Revelation. Now the difficulty of holding that view for this passage is that when the original hearers heard it, it's likely not what they were thinking about when he talked about that which is partial is passing away and the fullness is coming and we will one day see face to face. The partial, he says, would only, uh, that the partial would only last until the church had all the collection of the prophecies given through the apostles and the writers of the New Testament is unlikely to be the view that, that the Corinthians had in mind when Paul wrote that the partial is passing. More likely it is this with John Calvin and others, so I'm in good company with most, most scholars. More likely it is that Paul is saying here that the partial passing away and time of perfection coming is the time of perfection or completion or maturity when the Lord Jesus Christ himself comes, when he returns. 
As Paul put it in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, God, is be- God who began a good work in us is carrying it on to completion, to maturity, to perfection in the day of Christ Jesus. When Jesus returns, then the whole time of wholeness and perfection will come. So, so to prophesy in heaven, in the new heavens and the new earth, would be like turning on a flashlight in the light of the full noonday sun. I mean, what would be the point? You simply don't need it. In heaven, people will be completely restored to God. The creation itself will be fully redeemed. And when that happens, all prophecy and knowledge which the Spirit gives will have found their end goal. They will have arrived at at that to which they, they lead. So rather than pointing to the completed giving of the prophecies in the completion of the New Testament... Verse 8, it seems to me, looks to the completed fulfillment of the prophecies in the coming of Jesus. Now listen, I may have already confused you, and I may confuse you more by what I'm saying. And I realize last week was all application, and today seems like a, a lot of explanation. But I want to say this, under neither view that I just described, must we hold that there will be a long string of continuing new special revelations from the whole time of the first coming of Jesus until the second coming of Jesus. In fact, there haven't been a whole long line and string of new and continuing revelations. In the Bible, we have everything God intends for us to have in matters of faith and life. We're not missing something from the completed revelation of God. One evidence of that, one, simply is that in the history of the church, the Christian church has not added to the scriptures any continuing revelations beyond the book of Revelation. And those individuals who have sought to do so have been outside of Christianity, like in the Muslim, Mormon, and Jehovah's Witness communities. What we have, uh, or what we need, we have in the Bible. As Paul told Timothy, all scripture is God-breathed and is able to equip you for every good work so that you can be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Not insufficiently equipped, but thoroughly equipped. And so that all that teachers in the church are doing, all that I ought to be doing or anybody ought to be doing, is reading and explaining and illustrating and applying the faith which has once for all been delivered to all the saints. Now that doesn't mean we've arrived. That doesn't mean that we've got it all together. We understand everything there is to be understood. No, that awaits yet heaven. Paul uses two analogies in verses 9 through 12 to get at it. He uses the analogy of growing up, from childhood to maturity, and he uses the analogy of looking in a mirror. He says in verse 9, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, and when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. And then he says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. And again, so I think here, the view that prophecy and knowledge is being partial until the return of Jesus seems to find more support when he says, now we see as through a mirror darkly, but then face to face. Paul chose this imagery of looking in a mirror because the Corinthians were famous for making high quality, highly polished bronze mirrors. Mirrors like we have today with glass with some silver laid in behind it that give you very clear 
reflections didn't exist until the 19th century. Now, I mean, there have been all kinds of attempts at various kinds of mirrors, and along the way it's grown, but, but the kinds of mirrors they have then were basically pieces of metal that were highly polished. And, and the Apostle Paul is saying here, now look, we see Jesus not by sight, but we see him as in a mirror. And the mirrors at Corinth were good, they weren't bad. They were good mirrors for the day. But any mirror is going to give you but a reflection of the glory of the object seen in the mirror. Just as we might say in our own day, something they didn't have, we might look at a photograph we take of one another. And it is true as far as it goes, but it simply isn't the same thing as being face to face with one another. There are limitations. There is a dimness to looking in a bronze mirror. Is it helpful to do so? Absolutely. And looking at Christ through the mirror of God's revelation, through the mirror of his written word, does bring a true picture of Jesus, adequate to equip you for every good work, but it isn't to be compared to the glory of standing in the presence of Jesus himself, talking one-on-one. And that is what you are promised. We will see him face-to-face. So Paul says, now I know in part, bit by bit, piece by piece, I don't know at all. To say we have partial truth doesn't mean we have error. We could be in error. We could certainly get things wrong. But to have partial truth doesn't mean you're in error. It simply means you don't have all the truth that there is. Uh, knowing that 2 plus 2 equals 4 is true. But, but addition isn't the same as trigonometry and algebra and calculus. There is so much more to know about math. Likewise here, it doesn't mean that the knowledge we have is wrong. It doesn't mean it's unreliable. It's not. It's simply incomplete in the sense that we can grow in it ourselves, mature in it ourselves, and we wait to behold the glory of the Lord face to face. So we grow. Just as going from the Old Testament to the New Testament is like turning up the dimmer switch in a darkened room, So that the light shows you what's already there, but you couldn't see it very clearly because it was in darkness. So the New Testament is the the light that floods the Old Testament and helps us see Jesus even there. But so also the transition from the revelation of the New Testament to the living reality in heaven itself will bring greater clarity to us all. So we're moving from immaturity to maturity, from from the unclear to the clear, from the reflection to face to face. And that, my friends, is a really good reminder to us all that this is not all there is. This is not all there is. Our understanding and experience is not heaven on earth. We are but pilgrims here living in exile from the home where we long to be. So don't believe the lie that if you just believe in Jesus, 
everything about your life will just fall into place and you'll never have any questions. You'll never have any doubts. You'll never have any ignorance. You'll never have any confusion. You'll never have any disappointment. Don't believe that lie. We are not in heaven on earth. But those things will be banished in the presence of the glory of the Lord. So then we should cultivate humility. If that which is... Uh, known is at best partial and incomplete, and it is, and if we are still in the days of imperfection, and we are, then that ought to affect how we handle what it is we do know. And there ought to be a humility among us, a far greater humility than, than I or any of us have. There ought to be an eager, eagerness in us to learn and grow. There ought to be a, a, a willingness in us to listen to others. And to admit our faults. There ought to be not such a smugness about us as if we have arrived and we know the answer to everything. Um, we have nothing else to learn. That so turns off one another and our non-Christian neighbors too. So Paul says, and, and that, was the, that was the bulk of the sermon on permanence. That was most of it. So love never ends. It's, we're not over yet, folks. Yeah. We haven't arrived face to face, if you know what I'm saying. Love never ends, but certain spiritual gifts do end because they are simply means to get us face to face with Jesus. That's the first lesson on love. Love never ends in contrast to that. Now, the second lesson is this in verse 13. Love never ends just as faith and hope never end. They all abide, these three. They abide. They don't cease, he says. They all three go on into eternity. Love is greater than faith and hope. And Paul doesn't say why. He doesn't elaborate on that. There have been three reasons, three main reasons offered why it is that he says love is greater than faith and hope. One is because there is a sense sense in which faith and hope will be fulfilled in heaven. Faith will become sight. And our hopes will be realized in all the promises of God to us fulfilled in the new heavens and new earth. But that's not to say that faith and hope don't exist in heaven, although people have said that. I mean, what is faith? Saving faith is simply leaning on, trusting, and depending in Jesus. That's saving faith. You don't quit doing that when you get to heaven. No, there's still faith in Jesus in heaven. You'll have a pure and perfect faith. So in one sense, faith will continue. The essence of faith is not the absence of the person you trust in, but it is trusting in the person, and we do. But faith will be significantly affected by actually seeing the one you trust in. Here we walk by faith, the Bible says, then we will walk by sight. There's a difference. And hope will continue, though it will change. In this life, hope anticipates good from God, which he has promised to us in the future. We long for the return of Jesus and and the fullness of his kingdom and all its benefits when we get everything. That's not to say that in heaven we won't have hope in the sense of looking forward to continued good from God. You will always have reason to believe that tomorrow God will be good to me again. If there's such a thing as tomorrow in the way that we understand it. But we will enjoy continued good from God. And so that in a sense we can always have hope, anticipation. But hope is significantly changed when you have entered the new Jerusalem. 
But love, in contrast, says this view, and I think there's something right here. Love isn't fulfilled at the return of Christ or even dramatically changed by his return. Absolutely, it is fanned into flame. It is. But the kind of love we taste now and the kind of love we share now with one another is the same kind of love that goes on for eternity. Though it's unhindered by our selfishness. Perfection in love will be ours, but it's the love we have already begun to share. Perhaps that's why he says love is greater. Now, a second reason people think this is that Paul's statement that love is greater than faith and hope is because faith and hope are not they're not essential attributes of who, God, of who God is, whereas love is. The Bible says God is love. It is essentially who he is. The Bible doesn't say God is faith or God is hope, but he is love. It's the very heart of him. That's why love is greater. And another third possible reason that, that Paul may have said love is greater than faith and hope is because his point, his point was to provoke these selfish Corinthians to serve one another in love. And while faith and hope are things we exercise so we can enjoy God's blessings and anticipate God's blessings. Because you can't have his blessings without trusting in Jesus and looking forward to what he's promised you. If you didn't look forward to it, it you wouldn't have hope. Yet love is that which we express to one another so that others may be blessed. And that's Paul's chief concern here in the whole section of this part of the book. Not my salvation and my future, but your blessing and your future and my service of you in that. That may be why he's saying love is the greater thing. So love like faith and hope, in any case, abide forever. That's really the second point. The last one is this. It's his application. Therefore, because love never ends, verse Chapter 14, verse 1, therefore pursue love. An old pastor named Alexander McLaren said this, cultivate the high things, the permanent things. Then death will not wrench you violently from all that you have been and cared for. But it will usher you into the perfect form of all that you have been and done upon the earth. Give yourself to love. Love goes on forever and heaven will just be the glory of love in its perfect form. How do you cultivate that kind of persevering love? Well, there's no technique in the Bible. We're never taught sort of the five steps or five easy steps to love. What we learn in the Bible is that love flows from the realization That God loved me when I was unlovely. That Jesus gave himself for me. That his love rescued me from hell. His love got me every spiritual blessing from God. And the Holy Spirit is given to me and lives in me and guarantees me this everlasting love. You know, in Luke chapter 7, Jesus is uh, there's a great story of, of Jesus going to a home and teaching about love and, and where love comes from. And I want to read it to you. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at his table. And behold, a woman of the city was there, a sinner. 
probably a prostitute. And when she reclined at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment and standing behind Jesus at his feet, she wept. And she began to, to, to wet his feet with her kisses and her tears and she wiped them with her hair and she kissed his feet and she anointed him with the oil. And now the Pharisee who invited him saw all that and he said to himself, if this man Jesus was a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she's a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. And Jesus goes on, a certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? And he said to him, you've judged. Uh, Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. You have answered correctly, Jesus said. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, Her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. Now do not misunderstand Jesus. He is not saying she purchased her forgiveness by her love. He is, rather as the story ends, saying that she showed such great love Because she knew she had so many sins forgiven. He who is forgiven little, loves little. He who is forgiven much, loves much. And so the key to growing in love is not to jump through hoops or find quick five quick easy steps, but it is to let the gospel work on your heart. To find in your heart impatience and envy and selfishness and anger and resentment and suspicion, and distrust, and cynicism, and fickleness, and the tendency to abandon those we ought to love. To find all that into our hearts, and and then to remember the death of the Son of God for us. Because he loved us, and he gave himself. And the resurrection of the Son of God for us, to give us eternal life. So then we treat others with the grace with which he has treated us. And the key to persevering in love, not growing in it, but persevering in love, is to find that in the gospel, God's love for us is persevering. When we have fallen down and failed to be loving, Jesus does not turn away from us. But the promise is true of Romans 8, 38 and 39. As Paul says, I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. His love perseveres. And when we love others and it causes us pain and trouble and loss of money and loss of time, we remember 
that it cost Jesus far more to secure us in the unending love of God. And when we fall, because we do, he holds our hand and he picks us up. That's where you get persevering love. You get it from his love persevering with you. Let's pray. Father, we bless you. We need this love ourselves. We need greater confidence in your love for us. I pray that from your glorious riches, by the power of your spirit, you would help us to know how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Jesus, and then help us to love as we have been loved. For I pray in his name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing praise to the Lord.